the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this uh, weekend. This is week space. This is uh, the installment of the Dan Proft Show, the Friday show. And uh, as always, appreciate having you. Follow us at danproftshow.com. And again, for source material, uh, what we use in discussions with guests, as well as just my soliloquies, uh, follow me uh, on social media at Dan Prof Show. Uh, we begin this evening with the big news, which is President Trump and First Lady Melania Trump testing positive for COVID-19. This was announced in the wee hours of Friday morning via Twitter by President Trump, uh, saying that uh, we've tested positive and we're going to get through, through this together, feeling good, we'll get through through this together. The reports are everything from them being asymptomatic to the president having mild symptoms like the symptoms of a cold. Lindsey Graham uh, said this morning that he spoke to the president. He sounded good. The president's doctor, Sean Connolly, issued a statement uh, releasing the following information with the permission of the president and first lady. This evening, I received confirmation both President Trump and first lady Melania Trump tested positive. COVID-19, I'm paraphrasing here, President are both and First Lady are both well at this time. They plan to re- remain at home within the White House during their convalescence. The White House medical team and I will ma- maintain a vigilant watch, and I appreciate the support provided by some of the country's great medical professionals and institutions. Rest assured, I expect the President to continue carrying out his duties without disruption while recovering, and we'll keep you updated on any future developments. Of course, it doesn't take... Um, a significant development in the sense of life threatening for the prospect of a trans- temporary transfer of power to be invoked. Uh, George H.W. Bush had temporarily transferred power to his vice president, Dan Quayle, when he had a colonoscopy, for example. But uh, that has not happened at this point. There has been no need for that at this point. And the question is whether at some point in the not too distant future, uh, if not this weekend, then the beginning of the next week, once uh, there's uh, a little bit more time for the virus to present itself to see how if the president is really going to be significantly ill or or not significantly ill. And the same with the first lady, of course, Uh, should he address the nation to uh, provide information and present himself to the public to assure Americans that he is uh, fully capable, that he's okay, effectively will be okay, and that he can continue carrying out his duties. Uh, That's a question. Uh, we'll put to our next guest, who is Phil Kirpin, president of the American Commitment and chairman of the Internet Freedom Coalition. Phil, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, Dan. Great to be with you. Uh, so what do you think? Uh, should the president, um, uh, after uh, 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 proper medical attention, consider making some sort of national address about uh, his condition, his wife's condition, uh, and, and sort of by extension, COVID-19? 
Well, I uh, suspect this president, being the way he is, will get uh, regular tweet updates. Uh, of uh, you know, he's probably not going to have much to do while he's sequestered in the uh, residence, other than you know, watch TV and tweet about it. So I think we'll hear plenty from him, uh, one way or the other. I do think the idea of uh, you know him explaining what's going on and how he's doing would be helpful at some point, and we probably will see that. And you know, I mean, the thing to bear in mind is even in the he's in the age group where it could be a very serious. Yes, right. Okay. Mm -hmm. But but even in that age group, it's still statistically speaking much more likely to be not a serious disease. uh, You know, and so we need to see. Uh, to your point, uh, we need to see over the next few days how this develops. If he says, you know, it was just the sniffles and now it's gone, you know, that would be tremendous. If it ends up being serious illness, remember, I mean, Boris Johnson ended up in an ICU. Yes. And so we've seen a world leader have a pretty serious uh, bout of this before. And, uh, of course, the difference is we're very close to an election. And so, uh, you know, it, it's going to be very interesting, I think, if he does have a severe illness, you know, what does that mean, uh, you know, would he be able to campaign at all, or you mean, would he be in a hospital? So, I mean, we need to see. But the odds are that even in even in his, even at his age, the odds are it'll be very minor because 90% plus it is very minor even in the highest risk groups. And so, you know, we'll see. The odds are this won't be a serious thing. Uh, if it is, uh, you know, that could throw a lot of things into disarray. Well, this uh, this calls into question the next presidential debate. It uh, highlights uh, perhaps a heightened importance to the vice presidential debate, which is this coming Wednesday. Uh, but, the, but the next debate, October 15th, if he has to quarantine for 14 days because he's symptomatic, that sort of bumps right up against uh, that next debate scheduled in Miami. And one wonders if that will have to be canceled and then with the prospect of perhaps of only one more debate or if Joe Biden will use this opportunity to listen to all the left wing op ed writers like Frank Bruni at The New York Times and and save democracy by canceling the debates altogether. Well, I think that if it is still medically indicated for the president uh, to be quarantined at that time, um, but he's otherwise competent to debate, then they should do it. Uh, you know, he should do it remotely, and they should use a satellite link up and you know, do the debate without them being in the same room, which um, might actually be better in some respects. You might get less of the sniping and the interrupting and the back and forth if you have that kind of a setup. But uh, I think if he's able to debate, if he's of sound mind, he's not in a severe medical condition, what have you, then they definitely should have the debate. Uh, if the if he's out of the quarantine period, they should have it normally. But if he's in it, uh, I think they should you know make arrangements for him to do it by satellite from the White House or something like that. Uh, the American people need to see more, especially after the muddled mess that was the first debate. And so I, I would really hope uh, that they find a way to make that debate happen. Uh, you've uh, written, just sticking on COVID for a second, but uh, another policy area is related to it. You've written about uh, testing uh, and, and on a range of other issues COVID-related over the many months here. And um, I wonder how you how how uh, optimistic you are about the announcement at the beginning of the week, the Abbott rapid test that you've been calling for a rapid test, not necessarily from Abbott, but rapid testing, the, the paper uh, testing where you get the results in virtually real time, 15 minutes, as Admiral Gara demonstrated. How, how much of a game changer do you think that is? I've been asking medical professionals all week the question, but want to get your perspective as well. Well, uh, instead of using a strip of paper, they made it on a plastic credit card-like thing so they can charge $5 instead of $2. Uh, but it's <laughs> yeah. still a lot better than the $100-plus lab test and maybe 50 or 100 more for the specimen collection that we've been doing. Uh, it's very important to get rapid testing. The, the lab test that we've been using, the PCR test that we've been using, 
have a huge, huge false positive problem. Uh, and, and you don't notice it as much when you're in sort of the raging epidemic like we were, you know, months ago. But, uh, you know, about 0.8 to 4% of all of the tests taken with these PCR lab tests uh, are uh, show positive, uh, even if the underlying sample is not really positive. And, you know, let's say it's the end, bottom of that range. Let's say it's 0.8 or even a little less than that. Well, you know, that doesn't matter much if 10% of the people who are testing are positive or something like that. When 1% of the people testing are positive because the population prevalence has gone down a lot, now, now you have more false positives than real positives. And uh, you're quarantining lots of people unnecessarily and you're scaring people with headlines. And uh, it's a big, big problem. And, you know, the even if people are truly uh, infectious, the turnaround time, sending it to the lab, waiting for it to come back, sometimes by the time they find out, they're not even infectious anymore. So they can't really change behavior. The instant test is much, much more useful for two reasons. One, you get the results right away. But two, it's actually calibrated to tell you whether you're infectious right now, which the lab tests are not. They're overly sensitive, and they cause uh, a lot of both, both outright false positives and sort of trivial positives uh, based on old dead virus that's not currently infectious. So this is a big deal. Uh, but I have a couple of problems with the way they did this. First of all, uh, they're still not approved for home use, which I think is a big problem. You can't just go to a drugstore and buy a packet test to use when you want to because it can only be administered by a certified lab tech. So that is a big, that's an FDA problem. They, they really need to issue an emergency use authorization for home testing so that people can have tests and use them, you know, use them whenever they want to, but really use them when they're going to see vulnerable people. You're going to visit an elderly parent or grandparent. You, you shouldn't have to go to a lab. You should be able to go to the drugstore, buy a test, make sure you're good, and then you can go see that person instead of being isolated from them. And so I, I really think they, they need to have the home use authorization. But the other thing, Dan, that I find absolutely astonishing is with this Abbott test is the federal government bought the entire production run. It's not going to be distributed through any market mechanism. It's the, the federal government bought 100% of the production, and they're, like, granting it out to the states. It's like a Stalinistic plan. I don't understand. You know, I don't, I, I don't see why we think that's a better distribution system than using the normal uh, distribution channels. And uh, I'm hoping that the FDA will grant emergency use authorization to some of the other uh, instant tests that are out there from some of the other manufacturers, and those will actually go through regular distribution channels so people can get them without it being, you know, a political process of the federal government sending it through the states and so forth. Um, but really, uh, we need to get that home test authorization. That's critical, uh, I think, to make these tests as useful as possible. And, and to facilitate the openings of the economy and K-12 through school systems as soon as possible as well. Yeah, exactly. Look, I mean, if everyone who wanted to could go buy a test whenever they want, and, you know, if they were $2 each or whatever, and you could go buy a 20-pack and you could test, you know, your family whenever you want to, as frequently as you want to, you could see so many applications for that that would just address kind of all of the residual fears that people have in all of these areas and could help open things up. Um, but it's hard for me to see how that happens if they have to be administered by a certified lab tech every time. So they, getting that home authorization is really important. He is Phil Kirpin, president of American Commitment and chairman of the Internet Freedom Coalition. Phil, thanks as always for joining us. Grab a head seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show.
Welcome back to the program. And uh, as we were talking a little bit about perspective debates, let's uh, round out uh, this week's uh, postmortem on the first debate. And uh, to do that, we are treated to Chris Wallace going on with Bill Hemmer, colleague on Fox News Channel yesterday, to uh, respond to some of the criticism that he's received for the job that he did as moderator, as well as to uh, express his own frustrations about how things went versus how they how he wished they would have gone and, and who's responsible for that. Chris Wallace uh, uh, explaining uh, how things proceeded from the beginning, the first question about the Supreme Court nomination of Amy Coney Barrett, and then uh, how, how they got off the rails and, and to whom he ascribes blame. Listen very closely to the words Chris Wallace uses, because, of course, he's doing this interview for the purpose of reputation management, for the purpose of responding to the critics. Um, But in the same vein, he's trying to pretend that uh, this isn't about him. He is uh, trying to convey equanimity in terms of the perspective he brings to the presidential race. See if you buy it. Here's what happened. You know, we began the first segment on the Supreme Court. They each got their two minutes and they both uh, obeyed in that particular case. Uh, Then Biden started to answer a question and the president started interrupting him. And my initial reaction was, this is great, because so often these debates become parallel news conferences where one candidate answers the question to him, the other candidate answers the question to him. So when the president started engaging with Biden, I thought, we're going to have a real debate here. It became clearer and clearer over time that this was something different and that uh, the president was determined to try to butt in and throw uh, Joe Biden off. Uh, you, you gave your statistics. I saw another Fox analysis that indicates the president interrupted either Biden's answers or my questions a total of 145 times, which is way more than one a minute. And, and he bears the primary responsibility well, for what happened. Well, president Trump bears the primary responsibility for what happened. But um, that's the phrase people might seize upon. But there was just a specific word that he used at the outset. Did you catch it? Describing the first segment on the Supreme Court nomination of Amy Coney Barrett. What was the word he used? Obey. They obeyed in the first segment with respect to the first question. Um, but this isn't about Chris Wallace. They obeyed me. A friend of mine, as I think I said the other day, characterized uh, the debate as Chris Wallace treating the two candidates like they were interviewees for a job that he was filling as opposed to a recognition that he is just a facilitator for the two candidates to present their case to the American people however they so choose. He is uh, the backstory, you know, very much a a Scotch-a-lady who uh, we'll uh, talk to a little bit later in the show about the September jobs numbers, uh, you know, had had a good point here. You know, you don't think of Ali Frazier and what the referee did in the ring. You're not supposed to notice the referee, the umpire. And uh, that's the role that Wallace was supposed to play. But uh, obviously for the last three days, we've been talking about Wallace and now he's talking about himself as much as about the presidential candidates. This is not for Wallace and his Hollywood friends and his Beltway friends. That's not who this is for. And they are not to determine the 
style in which the candidates must present. And frankly, as I said previously, I think it would have behooved Trump when Wallace said, I'm the moderator, which is effectively in his mind, as you just heard with obey. These are tell words. I'm the moderator. He's essentially saying I'm the boss. And President Trump should have said, that's very interesting. I I know you're the moderator. Uh, I'm the president and he's running for president. This is a conversation for us to communicate our views to the American people. Uh, We are not to abide your strictures. Yeah, you can talk about the time limits and so forth, but uh, you are to let us go back and forth. And frankly, per Chris Wallace's uh, statement right there to to Hemmer, Bill Hemmer, yeah, you don't want siloed, you know, side-by-side press conferences. That's not a debate. You've heard my criticisms of the forum the debate took and President Trump's conduct for uh, a significant portion of that debate, which I don't think was helpful. I think it presented or it uh, it left him with many, many missed opportunities. But that said, that doesn't mean it was Wallace's position to intercede and regulate. Additionally, not in a way that he's suggesting, I I would add. Uh, Additionally, it it also doesn't mean that uh, debate should have more structure as opposed to less or that there shouldn't be any more debates because the American public can't handle it as Many on the left are suggesting. Now, again, this is not about Chris Wallace, right? Not about him. But uh, listen to uh, listen to this. The frustration here, Bill, is this: that here, here was my debate book, and and literally hundreds of man hours and woman hours between me and my researcher went in to try to prepare a serious, substantive debate. And on so many issues, uh, Biden's tax and spending plans, uh, Trump's climate and environmental policies, you know, I, I was really hoping for the, for the debate that I think America wanted to see, which was a serious exchange of views. And, and you know, I felt like I had, had gotten together all of the ingredients. I had baked uh, uh, this beautiful, delicious cake. And then, frankly, the president put his foot in it, and uh, it, that was frustrating. Look what he did to my beautiful cake, my cake, all the man and woman hours, because, you know, man hours and woman hours are different somehow. Uh-huh. I mean, he, he Chris Wallace, like, look at this binder. I put together this beautiful cake that I baked. Today we're going to be making pepper steak. <laughs> now, you're going to need one large bell pepper, Three onions, exactly two inches in diameter, and 17 and a third ounces of lean beef cut into 43 pieces. Mm, yes, uh, the anal retentive moderator. Okay, and good gosh, I miss Phil Hartman. Uh, in terms of the, regarding the criticism that Wallace received, and again, Bill Hemmer soft peddling, I get it, he's a colleague. He just said generically, respond to the criticism. You know, pick whichever criticism you like to respond to rather than being more specific about it. But here's the Wallace response to the question of criticism. Hindsight's 2020. If I had known that the debate was going to keep going this way, I guess I thought originally, as I say first, that the president was going to engage in a debate with, with Biden and let Biden answer so they could go back and forth. Uh, that that was a misapprehension. Then I thought maybe the president's going to do this in the first segment, try to rattle Biden when that didn't work. I thought, and I think he would have been well advised to pull back and let Biden talk more because Biden's answers weren't always great. In fact, sometimes uh, I think if the president had stepped back and let Biden give his answers, he could have been more effective in picking them apart. 
And it was only, you know, uh, 45 minutes in that I realized what a, what a just a total mess and disservice this was to the country and to try to stop it. Do I wish I had stepped in earlier? Yes. But as I say, hindsight is 20. Yeah, that's Wallace's effort to present himself as even handed, as dispassionate on the topic of the two, the two candidates, the two men on stage, which I don't think he honestly is. All right, we're back to our cake, and I'm going to add a sunburst of lady fingers and Bing cherries on top of the whipped cream layer. Won't that be fun? I think so. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the program. Uh, just uh, updating uh, our discussion from the top of the show with Phil Kirpin and talking, obviously, about President Trump and Melania testing positive for uh, COVID-19. It is worth noting that Amy Coney Barrett has tested negative, just in thinking about her confirmation hearing schedule for October 12th, just as we were discussing the next presidential debate schedule for October 15th. Additionally, uh, the rest of Trump's family, people probably interested to know, Trump's son, Barron, daughter, Ivanka, her husband, Jared Kushner, all tested on Friday, received a negative result. Uh, RNC chairwoman Rona McDaniel, however, did uh, test positive, and she is quarantining at her home in Michigan. So just a point of order on that as uh, the testing. And, and, of course, Vice President Pence and his wife have tested negative as well. But just keeping people updated on the testing and who's testing positive and who isn't uh, so that uh, we will be updating you. You know who will be updating you on in terms of their health condition as we hope that all are asymptomatic or mild symptoms and a speedy recovery, of course, as we do for anybody, anybody who tests positive for the infection. Uh, getting back to the matter of race, since up until uh, late last night when it was announced that Trump and Melania tested positive for COVID, this was the obsession of the D.C. press corps after the Tuesday evening debate. It uh, may uh, be worthwhile for an enterprising uh, moderator or perhaps even a reporter on the occasion of a next debate or, or even a scripted press conference, uh, press briefing from Joe Biden, to inquire about this, uh, despite all of those man and woman hours that Chris Wallace and his research staff put in. They didn't they weren't able to find this, even as he was wanting to understand where President Trump is on the issue of white supremacy again and again and again and again. Uh, Joe Biden uh, telling a uh, newspaper in Delaware in 1975. Quote, I do not buy the concept popular in the 60s, which said we have suppressed the black man for 300 years and the white man is now far ahead in the race for everything our society offers. In order to even the score, we must we must now give the black man a head start or even hold the white man back to even the race. I don't buy that, said Biden. I don't feel responsible for the sins of my father and grandfather. I feel responsible for what the situation is today, for the sins of my own generation. And I'll be damned if I feel responsible to pay for what happened 300 years ago. Huh. Uh, has uh, Reparation H, his running mate, been apprised of that? Maybe ask her about that on Wednesday at the vice presidential debate. I'd be interested in her response as well if we're going to play the race identity game and if we're going to hold people to account for the things they've said, however artfully or inartfully, in furtherance of the positions they say they hold today. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by Chris Buzkirk. He's the editor and publisher of American Greatness, amgreatness.com. Chris, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. 
Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I, I was uh, struck by the failure of um, Joe Biden to be questioned about uh, his storied history of comments on race and race relations and policies related to uh, race, uh, including that uh, rather specific uh, quote about uh, affirmative action programs, implicitly about reparations, considering today's Democrat Socialist Party, of which he said a very Louis the Fourteenth esque, he is the party. That's where they're at. On they are not where uh, he used to be on those issues. Yeah, I um, I, w- I really wonder about uh, about this line of attack that Republicans seem to want to go on. I mean, th- I, we should learn or have learned by now that this is a, this is something that only goes one way. Right. And, uh, and when we start say, uh, talking about Joe Biden uh, as sort of being tough on crime in the 70s or the 80s, it doesn't that just make him more attractive to independents uh, and centrists? I mean, he's basically running with the narrative of the Republican Party for the past 40 years. So if you're an independent who doesn't have a strong stake in either one of these candidates and you hear people, you hear Republicans say, gosh, Joe Biden's terrible. He doesn't think that he should be guilty for the sins of his father. And they go, yeah, that seems like a pretty mod- moderate uh, common sense point of view. Aren't we just making him more attractive I don't know. to the people that we're trying to woo? I don't know. I mean, I, I think there are some people who believe that uh, I don't feel responsible for what happened 300 years ago today. And I believe if you were if you put that to Joe Biden today, he would largely disavow those statements. So, I mean, I think it speaks to the idea that he's a chameleon and the modern Democrat Socialist Party is a Marxist party. And that's who he's going to be beholden to because he goes whichever the way the wind's blowing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's sort of like uh, that to me that uh, is baked in the cake already. That's like uh, telling people, you know what, Trump's going to tweet some outrageous things that you might not love. And, uh, and people say, yeah, no, I know that about him, but, I, but I'm going to vote for him anyway. And when you say Joe Biden, you know, he's not that smart. Uh, he's got a little bit maybe of uh, cognitive decline. And by the way, he'll say anything to get elected. Uh, probably most people go, oh, so you're describing a politician. OK, Um I think I'm good with that. I, I get it. So, which one of the which one of these is going to do something good for me? Mm, um, um, if we want, if we if we want to go down the road of like who is going to be pulling the puppet strings, I think we just need to go after uh, the people who are going to be pulling the puppet strings and talk more about, say, Kamala Harris. Uh, well, and, the, and the people who are going to be in a potential Biden cabinet. Let's uh, let's talk about uh, those puppet masters uh, when we return. More with Chris Buskirk, editor and publisher of American Greatness, AmGreatness.com, right up. I'm just sitting here watching the wheels go round and round. I really love to watch them roll. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof. And this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Chris Buskirk. He's the editor and publisher of American Greatness, amgreatness.com. And we were talking a little bit about uh, uh, Joe Biden, who he'll be beholden to or who will essentially be dominating a a prospective Biden administration. Perhaps some disagreement about how to uh, expose that to the American electorate. Uh, Chris, uh, tell us what you think should be done in terms of or if you think that is a proper approach, which is what the president and his campaign seem to be doing, is saying Biden will be beholden to the most radical elements of his party who hold positions that are just completely uh, anathema to the positions that you hold, uh, John and Jane Q. Public. 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of lines of attack there that, that are open to the Trump campaign that actually are very, very powerful. I mean, you start with uh, just start with the Biden family, right? The Biden family business has always been selling uh, access to Joe Biden when he's been in office. It's his brothers, it's his sons, you know, and this is something that's going on for a long time. And we and we sort of I mean, you and I know about this. People who follow this closely know this. But when you see the quid pro quos, where you see uh, Joe Biden selling out American interests to Ukraine or to China for money and his family taking the money. I think that's powerful, and that needs to be talked about more. Donald Trump tried to do it a bit. I thought was pretty good at it in the debate the other night. That's part. Um, we have, I have seen almost nothing about Kamala Harris. I mean, Kamala Harris is a very radical uh, person. When you want to think about, you know, you, you, conservatives like to talk about, oh, my gosh, you know, the gulag is coming. You know, that's sort of the – she's sort of the terrifying commissar of some potential conservative nightmare uh, gulag. And, you know, there's this whole uh, situation when she was attorney general in California where her office was suppressing exculpatory evidence of people who were in prison, who were doing – uh, who were doing labor for the state for free because they were in prison, and she was hiding the evidence on innocent people. Well, I mean, why isn't that out there? That's something that conservatives I know have written about, but that's something the campaign needs to be uh, talking about. I mean, these are the sorts of things you say, look, everybody kind of gets the joke, right? Joe Biden's almost 80 years old. He'll be 82. God forbid if he wins, he'll be 82 when he uh, is in his fourth year in office. So who do we really think? Is going to be uh, is going to be calling the shots in there. I think people know that, but they haven't put a face on it, right? And the face is obviously his vice president. I mean, I would just start there and say, like, who is Kamala Harris and what has she done? And then when you sort of look at her track record with Willie Brown, you look at her track record as Attorney General, and you look at just her on the record statements about everything from uh, you know how she would deal with, for instance, prosecuting Donald Trump's family, right? That's something that I think uh, is very popular with the left, which is scary on its own, but is not particularly popular with people in the middle and certainly not with Republicans. And yet there's nobody talking about that. Well, so is that, um, is, that, it, is that what you'd like to see vice presidents do at a room temperature level, which is where he's comfortable against uh, Kamala Harris on Wednesday? Yeah, I, yeah, I'm really this, this uh, debate, you know, I mean, what, unfortunately, with the with the COVID test test positive, you know, I think that probably means there's no more presidential debate. So there's going to be a lot more focus on the on the Pence Harris debate. And uh, and I think Mike Pence needs to he needs to do, he needs to be very Mike Pence, but it, he also needs to be more than the usual Mike Pence, uh, if that makes any sense. And I guess what I mean by that is uh, he the most the most aggressive address- Mike Pence that's uh, available. Yeah, th- no, that's exactly right. You know, and when I say he needs to be aggressive, he needs to be aggressive in the way that a Mike Pence would be aggressive, which actually, you know, obviously is very different than Donald Trump. Right. But he needs to be sharp and he needs to be smart. He needs, he needs to be able to take the uh, initiative in this debate and, start, and just be very, very substantive and on the attack about some of these things that I've been talking about with Harris and her record and the things that she said on the record. And he needs to just lay out the case. Um, and what I'm what I'm concerned about is that he gets is that he gets cowed or he gets steamrolled into silence, kind of like uh, Paul Ryan did when he um, when he when he did the debate with Biden. Right. Uh, uh, so you, you know, can, you can, your fingers crossed. Yeah, you can be a gentleman but forceful at the same time. Uh, Absolutely right. Yeah, uh, I wanted to get to something you wrote because there there seems to be a couple of things happening below the fold that may be laying the predicate for a surprise, at least a surprise to the institutional interests and the conventional wisdom purveyors uh, inside the Beltway. One is uh, the story actually from NBC News. And so, you know, this is not reported with uh, enthusiasm. Trump is winning the voter registration battle against Biden in key states. Uh, the Biden campaign ditched their ground game to do virtual because of covid concerns. The Trump campaign continues their ground game and uh, it's showing up in the uh, Republicans added to the registration rolls in Florida, in Pennsylvania, North Carolina and Arizona. So that combined with uh, what you wrote about with Trump 
uh, improving, seeming to improve his numbers per approval ratings with black and Hispanic voters in critical swing states, some of which I mentioned, but uh, others as well. Uh, Are those two dynamics sort of underappreciated in terms of how close this race really is? I think so. I mean, they they run very much counter to the uh, to, to the gaslighting narrative that we see coming out of uh, out of mainstream media. The, the there is, of course, the I think baked into the cake assumption that, uh, for instance, Hispanics slash Latinos are just permanently part of the Democratic Party. I don't think that's true. Uh, and the polling uh, that we've done in these states uh, shows that uh, Donald Trump is getting about 10 to 15 points more. Hispanic support than he did in 2016. Uh, that's been borne out by some of the polling, even that NBC did, for instance, I think it was about two weeks ago now in Florida, where they were showing him with, with Trump with about 15% more Hispanic uh, support in Florida than he had in 2016. And that's <clears throat> that's definitely not something that is um, is going to be, as you would say, above the fold in, uh, in mainstream media. But it's something that I think is real. I think it's something that is happening. We, um, you know, I'm, I'm always a little concerned when I see these when I see this stuff because. It's what I want to happen, and so when I see things that I that I that I that I really want to have happen, uh, starting to, uh, yeah, I always wonder, gosh, you know, am I am I fooling myself, or is is this data good? So we need to see what happens, obviously, between now and November third. But so far, I think that there are legitimate signs. They've been repeated in multiple states by multiple polls, not just by what we've done, but what, what, what by other people, what other people have done. And then, uh, and so that I think is pointing in the right direction. And then you combine that with this voter registration data, where Republicans actually have done quite a good job. Uh, you know, Republicans usually lag Democrats in our ground game in sort of the, just the basic blocking and tackling of electoral politics. This year, we've done we've done a good job, and we've uh, we've cut the gap. Um, that was built up between us and Democrats in 2018. So, you know, I think cautiously optimistic uh, as to where we are on that stuff right now. As you say, you know, the the, uh, registration uh, numbers have been good for Republicans in Pennsylvania, Florida, North Carolina, Arizona. I've heard, I haven't seen the data. I I was talking to somebody last night who said Michigan looked pretty good on that front as well, but I I haven't seen the numbers. Mm. But uh, look, registrations matter. Right. I mean, the poll, you know, when we do polling, that's great. But it's as I always say, there's only really one poll that matters, and that's the one that happens in the actual election. It would be uh, just the most uh, delicious bit of cosmic justice if President Trump were to win the election based on winning Latino voters outright in places like Florida, Florida and increasing his percentages of Latino and black voters in these swing states. I mean, that couldn't be uh, a better uh, dish of revenge served cold to the left than that. He is Chris Buskirk, editor and publisher of American Greatness, amgreatness.com. Chris, thanks for joining us. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. And uh, it was Emerson who observed that uh, first the language is corrupted and then man is corrupted. Well, we've corrupted the English language and that corruption continues and thus so does the conduct of man. Let me give you an example. Loudoun County, Virginia. Rules of professional conduct for teachers and staff up for a vote at its uh, October 12th board meeting. Any comments not in alignment with the the school division's commitment to action-oriented equity practices? (laughs) That is a sentence... Just filled with newspeak, isn't it? Uh, What are we talking about? Race, of course. A policy acknowledging that uh, employees have a First Amendment right to engage in protected speech, but it may be outweighed by the school district's interest in promoting internal, external community harmony and peace and achieving 
directives, including protected class equity, racial equity, and the goal to root out systemic racism, mm -hmm. root out systemic racism that's being imposed by the system. So does that mean the current uh, directors of the system are racist? Uh, the questions abound. Uh, employees accused of uh, violations of the speech policy are prohibited from retaliating against their accuser as well, even if they're falsely accused. The policy would also accommodate false complaints and not discipline those making them so long as they were found to have been made in good faith. Well, sure, whatever I do, I do in the name of rooting out systemic racism, so it cannot be questioned. That's the world in which you want to live, huh? It's funny, uh, Chris Rufo, the, over at the Manhattan Institute City Journal, a documentarian who's really focused on tackling critical race theory and uh, uh, its ubiquity and uh, its impact uh, across sector in American society, uh, said, uh, uh, tweeted, I should say, just had a meeting with a senior JAG Corps, uh, Corps officer in the military command. He told me that the orders came down to stop their critical race theory programs per President Trump's executive order. And the officers were relieved and happy that they're gone. The tide is turning. We're winning. Are we? AP style book, new guidance. Use care in deciding which term best applies, riot or protest. Sure. A riot is a wild or violent disturbance of the peace involving a group of people. The term riot suggests uncontrolled chaos and pandemonium. Focusing on riot and property destruction rather than underlying grievance has been used in the past to stigmatize broad swaths of people protesting against lynching, police brutality, or for racial justice going back to the urban uprisings of the 1960s. Unrest is a vaguer, milder, and less emotional term for a condition of angry discontent and protest verging on revolt. Are you following this? Revolt, protest, riot. Protests and demonstration refer to specific actions such as marches, sit-ins, rallies, or other actions meant to register dissent. They can be legal or illegal, organized or spontaneous, peaceful or violent, and involve any number of people. So now protests can be violent. Uh, you can call something just a protest. You don't even have to say what uh, was being said previously. Protest intensified when people started smashing storefront windows and stealing shoes or purses. Because, uh, you know, it, it, it's vague and mild, and uh, we don't want to stigmatize uh, where there is an uh, important political component. So that's AP, and that's how journalists around the country will happily redefine protest and violence. Uh, they're not quite to symbolic taking yet. Uh, for theft, where Nicole Hannah-Jones and the 1619 Project is, but they're getting there. Uh, Peter Borgosian, a uh, academic at Portland State we've talked to before, uh, and who's a man who comes from the left of center, the, legitima the legitimation crisis is now complete, infused in all facets of American life. Uh, regrettably, I think he's right. This is Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. U.S. adding 661,000 jobs in September, as you heard at the top of the hour. The unemployment rate falling below 8% to 7.9%, but uh, below street estimates in addition to the real complicating factor uh, this morning, which, of course, is the instability in D.C. per the health condition of President Trump and his wife, First Lady Melania Trump, after they've both tested positive for COVID-19. This reported uh, overnight in tweets by the president, as well as a statement from his doctor. Uh, both uh, are 
understood to be asymptomatic at this juncture. And, of course, their condition will be closely monitored. There's been no transfer of power temporarily to the vice president. Um, I'm just, you know, updating people. But, of course, it does create concern because it is a serious infection, particularly for a 74-year-old man. But by the same token, we also know that uh, the survival rate is, um, you know, in the upper 90 percentile. So, of course, we hope that uh, both he and the first lady, as well as Hope Hicks, who likely was the transmitter, senior aide who tested positive, and then ultimately uh, President Trump and Melania tested positive. We hope they all get better soon uh, per the quarantine. Uh, we talked about the political implications. Now let's talk about some of the economic implications against the backdrop of the September jobs number with our friend Scott the Cow Guy Shalady, Fox Business contributor. Scott, thank you for joining us. Good Appreciate morning. It. Yeah. Good morning. Good morning. So, um, uh, I'm sorry, yes. I, I, John. I kept I kept the seat warm from John all night, so hopefully it's okay for him. It's, it's exactly, like a like a mother hen. You did. <laughs> uh, start with um, the impact of uh, the president and uh, and the first lady testing positive, particularly the president, because this is one of those shocks to the system that is unanticipated by the market, and so royals it apparently this morning. <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, uh, the Dow is down. The Dow futures are pointing for about a 500-point you know, point loss. It could be more than that. Who knows? But it's because of the uncertainty. Um, and you're right. They, they so far have been basically asymptomatic. Apparently, he had some symptoms that could have been explained by all the campaigning and talking he was doing with his raspy voice. Uh, but having said that, I think, um, you know, I, the first real big piece of news I got this morning is with this, you know, you already mentioned this transfer of power talk that's already done the you know, chattering circles is that Pence has a better chance over Biden than Trump does. So I, I don't, you know, I don't know where to go with it after that, but um, it, it's going to be something that's going to dominate the news today. The economic indicators that we got this morning, will take a back seat and this will be the focus, you know, hyper focus for the next 10 days for sure. Well, what about those economic indicators? So the jobs number, unemployment rate falling, but uh, the jobs number not as robust as anticipated. Yeah, it's it's following the pattern that it's been on. I don't think anybody should be surprised. I mean, yesterday's pattern of, uh, you know, less people filing for unemployment, but not as much, you know, not as drastic as we'd like. Today, we got more people put in jobs, but not as good as we'd like. So, yeah, the economy is getting better. We've got back just over half the jobs we lost when we started this whole mess. But you know what? Again, this is one for every month of damage we had. It's going to take three or four months to undo that one month's worth of damage, I think. So that that's the problem is that we all are wishing and hoping this problem away. And we want to get back to normal as soon as possible. But the, this is not a this was not a gash. This was a stab wound. And we're still trying to find out how deep that stab wound was. And so uh, the, the other uh, economic indicators you're looking at or does this come down to like this is you know just so much talking past the issue or attempting to talk past the issue? The issue is. Uh, wide swaths of the economy are not open. The issue is there is a significant percentage of the population that is feared, uh, that is afraid and not participating in economic activity and leisure activities and the like. And, uh, and until that changes, uh, we're going to do the best we can operating at half or three quarter speed. Exactly right. And the, you know, the market will always get ahead of it. Because the market's, you know, a voting mechanism for what's going to happen 6, 12, and 18 months down the road. So that'll be a little bit different. But in, in all actuality, the reality is going to tell you this, is that from the last day that the last state is open 100%, it's still going to be an 18-month, maybe 24-month ordeal as people try to get more comfortable with themselves. Now, yeah, we're going to have a vaccine, and we have to see the trajectory of the economy, which is going in the right way, but the trajectory is not as steep as it was. We've got a Fed there that's very accommodative. So all of those things are pointing for a recovery. 
but we have a bruised and battered American psyche that those economists and analysts don't take into consideration that even though we might even have a vaccine, that could be a two-year deal, and you could put a you know, million dollars of gold bars at the end of some of these people's driveways, and they still won't come out. So it's not going to happen overnight, and I, I still say it's slower, lower, longer. I know it sounds a little bit Debbie Downer-ish, but it's probably more true than everybody thinking that we're going to get back to normal as soon as a vaccine comes out. Uh, and so uh, the test that uh, you offered on the show yesterday, uh, we'll know that it's time to come out and grab those million dollars worth of gold bars at the end of our driveway. When what happens when we see what or anybody and, and whoever sees this first, what about what your lady's about to say? Uh, alert everybody else that it's safe. After you take a big position in the market for the recovery. For Yeah, um, I would exactly, say, uh, yeah. Yeah, you know, when you see that 70-year-old couple out celebrating their 50, 50th wedding anniversary in a hot and crowded Chinese restaurant, that you know COVID is over. So that's going to be the key. How hot does the restaurant have to be? It's got to be hot enough <laughs> that you don't want to order a hot meal. <laughs> okay, very good. But, I mean, your, your, your point is to say, I mean, this is against the backdrop in Chicago of, uh, you know, inching up of uh, capacity uh, uh, allowances at restaurants uh, this, and other uh, public facilities this weekend. But I mean, that, but, but, but that's not enough. You know, inching up, you're not getting a corresponding economic benefit. You know, it just drives me crazy because you know that these people in the, rest, the, in the restaurant industry, say you have a restaurant in, in one of those big buildings like, you know, Shake Shack around the corner from, you know, in the, in the city, in the Sears Tower. They, they need that place. They need the Sears Tower to be 95% capacity for them to make money. I mean, this idea that you can do anything better, I don't understand the geniuses in the room that think that they're going to let these people, and that by letting them, you know, the Stockholm Center, where you come out and kiss your captor, you kiss J.B. Pritzker because he allows you to sink slower or go out of business slower. It's absolutely ridiculous. And so the idea that even the federal government, that they can throw money at this problem is, to me, ridiculous because it's not a, it's not a money problem. It is because of what we've done to the economy, but it's really a psychological issue. You have to work on the psyche of the country, and that's going to be more important. So, Scott, the uh, president and first lady's positive test for COVID-19, how, how does that affect and, and for how long do you think the psychology of the market? Well, a couple of things have already happened. I, I've had to block a bunch of people from social media. It's a soulless place that it is this morning because of all the people that are actually celebrating the position that the that Trump's find themselves into, which I find absolutely disgusting. Right. And that will... That will make those that are even maybe friends or, or um, friendly to the president, they're going to be afraid more because we're going to get all this stuff that's going to be muddying those waters of, um, of uh, being afraid. And that's going to happen. And that's going to slow things even further. Right. So this will slow the economy down, I think, more because, oh, my gosh, the president's got it. The world's going to end. By the way, Boris Johnson had it. He had a bad case of it, too, by the way. Yeah. But he's still standing up. Right. So and all the baseball players that got it are all still standing up. Right. And you rightfully said before I came on, Dan, is that in his age group, he's got a 94.7% chance of living. So, I mean, before you start celebrating his predicament, the, the, the numbers actually say that uh, he's got a very, very good chance of, of continuing his, in his spot. No, uh, and it, I just wanted to pick up on something with respect to the, the president and COVID. It creates some uncertainty now, but, you know, hopefully if he is asymptomatic and he's able to uh, – uh, you know, a quarantine without incident, come back and, and be his, uh, just as he was prior to this announcement. Uh, that may, because he's so high profile, it didn't work with Boris Johnson, but that's in part because then they imposed these draconian lockdown measures, may encourage a lot of, uh, more people to be optimistic, may disabuse people of, of their fear. You know, President Trump is morbidly obese. He's this, he's that. Well, if a 75-year-old guy who's overweight can uh, get the infection, 
be asymptomatic or uh, ideally, hopefully, and then uh, you know come out the other side relatively quickly and everything's fine. Maybe that will disabuse some people of these um, irrational fears they're holding on to and maybe a bit of a, uh, a, a stimulus, if you will. Yeah, uh, yeah, litmus test for stimulus. Yeah, I, I, I could see that happening, too. But, you know, what it really kind of screws up in the short term is the campaigning. And he's yes, that, right, you know, he wants right. to be out in front of people. Right, so of course. can you imagine can you imagine in the middle of a campaign? having a lockdown in your basement and not come out any. Oh, wait, sorry. Yes, um, <laughs> so, Scott, those uh, champagne socialist paper changers at Goldman Sachs, the John Corzines and Lloyd Blankfeins of the world, they may say it doesn't matter who the president is with respect to fiscal policy. But Bob Johnson, who actually built something, says it does matter. Yeah. And there's two streams of thought going on there. Number one, it's just the stability, knowing what you know and dealing with what you have versus the, you know, the unknown. But another thing, too, is that um, when he was running for office in 2016, you know, he had that shrug of the shoulders. Hey, what do you got to lose to the to the African-American community? Right. What do you got to lose? Why don't you give me a shot? Right. What, how, how well has it been going for you the last 70 years? Well, with 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 the black community not knowing anything about that guy, he still garnered eight percent of the vote. And so if you want to try to listen to, say, even Candace Owens, where she says he's now over 20 percent of the vote because of. Now they know what he's done for them, the three and a half percent unemployment. And look what's gone. You know, black unemployment, I think this morning was over 12 percent because of this covid stuff. So they know that he can get them down to three and a half percent. They know what he can do for the, you know, the, the historical black colleges and universities. They know what he can do with these opportunity zones. That could be the biggest decider in the election that we're and the Latinos on top of it. So I think until last night's news, um, he, he's, he's, he's in very good territory, if you ask me. Uh, he is Scott, the cow guy, Shalady, Fox Business contributor, Scott. Thanks for joining us as always. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show, uh, switching gears from uh, the COVID impact on matters economic to the COVID impact on matters educational. Let me give you an example of the thinking of the ideological lockdown and bust artists, uh, those uh, who uh, want to lord over your lives, even when they're otherwise not particularly respectful of human life as a general as a general proposition, these are the people who are zero population growth people. These are people who are pro-abort. These are the Marxist leftists, right? These are the, 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 I mean, Marxist leftists is redundant, but these are Marxists, essentially, modern-day Marxists, American style, where it's identitarian as, as, and by race and, and gender and orientation as opposed to by class, per se. Oak Park, Illinois. I mean, I know sometimes I give a lot of Chicago examples, but there's so many good examples of the worst examples, and they're what I know best, but they're applicable around the nation, particularly in other blue states that are circling the drain. Oak Park, District 97. Okay. So the parents there, the parents there of elementary school kids, put together a little petition for the superintendent and the school board. I mean, this could happen just about anywhere or anywhere in, in any community in the country that's you know collectively lost its mind, suffering from shared psychosis, uh, they offer this. We're a group of Oak Park parents representing elementary schools in District 97, frustrated with the superintendent's leadership and the lack of any plan for a return to campus learning option. While surrounding communities spent the summer building task forces and uh, 
meaningful plans for kicking off the school year with on-campus options and finalizing uh, timelines for transition from e-learning to in-school learning. This school board and superintendent have had many meetings and conversations, but there's been no plan developed. We're so behind, and our kids will be too if we don't act now. Then they go through the stats that uh, anybody listening to this show knows about uh, the very minor risk of students, particularly at the elementary school level, returning to school, particularly younger teachers returning to school to educate them. And uh, they ask for this, do the parents, of their taxpayer-funded school district, their elected representatives, and the superintendent, their elected representatives, hire. We're not pushing for remote learning to stop for families who decide that this mode of learning works best for their children. We just want to build on the momentum so that we have a plan so that at some point those parents who want an in-class learning option for their kids can understand, can, can access that and have some idea when they might be able to access that. They close with this. I mean, just in terms of emphasizing again how modest is their request, how, mo- how substantive and modest is their complaint and how modest is the requested remedy. We respect and admire the District 97 teachers and staff trying to make the most of remote learning, but it's not enough. Our kids deserve better. Let's truly find a way to be in this together. Petition. Okay. I just want you to think about that when you contemplate the question, you know, is it possible to try to forge common ground with some of these individuals who seem to be particularly ideologically driven or maybe even just fear-addled? when it comes to all things COVID-19 related, that they, they don't want to have to contemplate risk. They don't want to have to deal in trade-offs. And we'll talk more about that after the break with uh, David Devil. Uh, but for now, I want to introduce you to an Oak Park Village trustee. Now, this person has no standing with respect to the school board, but she's emblematic of the culture in the People's Republic of Oak Park. Her name is Artie Walker Petacotla. She is a a microbiologist, uh, according to her Twitter bio, and uh, she felt compelled to respond to that petition that you heard me characterize and and summarize. Uh, She describes it as a poorly thought out petition. And in fact, what it really is, is an organizing effort led by the white parents of District 97 against all manner of things. But the main two are the lack of a plan to move back to in-person learning and the leadership of the superintendent. She is unsympathetic to their call because this is, as she, I'm quoting her, this is likely the first time most affluent parents in our village have had their lives disrupted so fully. 190 days since the landing of the pandemic here in Oak Park, now most people want that access to wealth and privilege back. That's how she characterizes parents knowing that an in-class setting is the best situation for their children to learn and develop intellectually that they pay for through property taxes mainly. They, she characterized that as desiring their access to wealth and privilege back. This is the identitarian mentality, and it informs every single issue. And this, by the way, is uh, a good example of the people that will be in a Joe Biden administration, just as they are in administrations in states like Illinois that are run by Marxists at the, at the, the, the urban metro as well as state level. This is going to inform policymaking if you turn your government over to these people. I'm not, there's just no question about it. You're seeing it happen at the local level. You're seeing it happen at the local and state level. Do you think they would 
put uh, put uh, pump the brakes if they had the opportunity at the federal level. Uh, the uh, Oak Park Village trustee, Miss Walker Petacotla, if you moved here for the schools and have to live with the burden of paying high property taxes as a quote unquote sacrifice just to stay here, then of course you deserve this the best this community has to offer. Right? Wrong. Forget the COVID numbers with over 200,000 dead in the U.S. Forget the lack of a cohesive federal response. Forget the fact that the burden of managing the COVID crisis has fallen to the states and local municipalities. Forget that in the middle of all this, we had a global uprising against white supremacy and colonization. Huh? Yeah. Mm -hmm. A reckoning with the damage that whiteness and casteism has inflicted around the world. Forget that in the U.S. there have been consistent protests at the murder of George Floyd. What does that have to do with wanting my kid in school? Forget that all of this, forget all of that, and just focus on the fact that right now we must return to in-person learning and at the expense of everyone and everything else, whiteness must be centered once again. Not holistic, the health and well-being of the community, but whiteness. To want your child back in the best learning environment possible is to try to center the community on whiteness. What could we do instead, you may be thinking. Or you may be thinking, I'm glad I don't live in Oak Park, Illinois. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, here's what uh, we could do instead, according to this identitarian Marxist. We could reckon deeply with the fact that COVID is here, likely for another year until our lives get back to some sort of normal. We could choose to radically accept, because that's the only way we can accept anything or do anything is radically, radically accept that our world has changed and normal has shifted and that we don't control all the things we used to control. Welcome to the world that most people of color deal with on a daily basis. We have to accept this blank situation. And as it is, just to survive our lives, just to survive our lives, right, with the 99.98% survival rate under the age of 50. Uh, Instead of fighting the situation, we could work to protect those most struggling. But what we cannot and are not going to do is center whiteness and the systems of white supremacy that have already created and exacerbated inequities in our village. Not today, Oak Park. Not today. She must be a Return of the King fan, too. Uh, Very poetic, very powerful. It's neither of those things, but it is very instructive, isn't it? So you want to understand what the struggle is in so many school districts around the country to get back to in-person learning where there is so little risk? It's because of people like this Oak Park Village trustee. Uh, Unfortunately, in many places, they are not so comfortable as to be so outspoken and transparent with their ignorance and hate as they are in Oak Park, Illinois. But now you have an insight. No time left for you. No time left for you. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the program, uh, transitioning from uh, our previous segment where we were uh, lectured by a uh, Oak Park, Illinois trustee about how we have to just accept the situation. And the situation means the impositions by government in order to survive our lives during the COVID-19 pandemic, despite the the data that suggests, you know, for example, a 99.998% survival rate among those uh, 30 and under and uh, just slightly less than that among those 50 and under. And even 95 percent, those 70 and over, despite that, we're just supposed to um, uh, cede our agency to the state, uh, we're told. 
for more on this topic of risk and life, which is a recurring one on this show because it seems like it has not uh, punched through to uh, a significant percentage of the population that refuses to live life with risk, that refuses to contemplate trade-offs in this uh, in this life on this mortal coil. We're pleased to be joined by David Devil, senior contributor at the Imaginative Conservative, editor of Logos, a journal of Catholic thought and culture, and visiting professor at the University of St. Thomas. David, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, Dan. I, I know uh, per <laughs> your piece about life being risky business, you're not so keen on writing more about COVID, so you're probably not so keen on talking about it, but I'm going to force you to anyway. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I like the fact you trace it back a little bit too, sort of, you know, where we are at this point in time is didn't just come out of nowhere. There's a buildup to some of uh, the cultural pathologies we see playing out before us. And you trace it back to kickball and how kickball was treat, being treated about 20 years ago when we had uh, no bigger concerns than uh, kickball injuries on the playground. Yes. I, in my article, I, I look back at, at a piece by uh, Matt Labash of the old a Weekly Standard, and he had written about a thing that many of us were starting to notice was this, this worry over kids playing kickball uh, because – uh, certain people were saying that, you know, gym class is the worst experience for every child. And uh, one professor at Eastern Connecticut State referred to it as premeditated murder ball. And this was a thing that you were starting to see a lot more of this safety stuff. And some of it seemed to be some of it seemed to be driven by corporate concerns. You know, everybody has to be in a car seat until, you know, they're you know, at least eight years old or 90 pounds. And, you know, everybody has to wear a helmet all the time when they're on a bike or, you know, now you see people sometimes walking in helmets. And so it's, it's a long pattern that we've had that Labash called in his article the wussification of America, where we've suddenly become unable to deal with any risk and must be safe at all costs. And the problem with that is that, is that A, you can't have any fun when safety is your only concern, and B, you can't, you can't actually get any of the benefits that risks uh, bring, uh, because things that are dangerous are often done for a big payoff. And we've been teaching kids for a long time that anything that has any dangers, well, you better, you better, you better call that off, or you better, you better not do it. And I think now we've seen that on, you know, whatever this is, day 198 of 15 days of flattening the curve, that people still can't come out, and people are still so afraid that even as I walked this morning uh, over to my office, <laughs> I, you know, people would walk 15 feet out of the way, uh, you know, as if a brief, you know, coming within six feet for a few seconds would uh, would get them sick and, and die. Um, I, I think that this is this is a real problem uh, and, and, that we created. And, and, yeah, and the, and the problem, it seems to me, um, just building off of what you were describing and, and the kickball example, um, they, these are sort of ubiquitous dynamics now. They weren't uh, three generations ago. They are now. Uh, yeah. And, and, and that is, one is everything out of the abundance of caution. And two is, you know, the, the cover story from institutional interest is always, well, like you were talking about the hel- the helmets and the safety seats and everything else is you know t- litigation exposure. It's uh, trial lawyers or corporate attorneys advising you know in order to uh, indemnify yourself or, or minimize the risk of litigation in our litigious society, you have to take all of these sort of nonsensical abundance of caution precautions. And it seems to me that I think it's it's this idea that I think still those are uh, symptoms of the problem. And the problem is that we've uh, developed a culture in which people think that telling people, imposing on people how they should live makes them a good person. Yeah, that's right. I, I, you know, I mean, that's why we use this term virtue signaling, right? Because it's much easier to signal your virtue than it is to act it out and, and to help others. And, you know, I think that 
one of the things about virtue signaling is that it's easy because it depends only upon uh, you know feelings and presentation rather than rather than real risk. And you know, I mean, we can you know we can go bigger than the the dodgeball or or uh, you know safety seats for everybody up to your 16 year old kind of idea. I mean, we we really kind of developed it at a big level with with after 9/11 with airport security. Um, you know, not everything that we do in there is obviously is obviously keeping us safe from terrorists. A lot of it is what people call security theater, and it's all designed to sort of make people feel safe, even if it doesn't really do much. But the, you know, this continual impinging on our rights in the name of a few people who might feel safer if we do things it is really creating a, a big problem. Well, so we think Donald Trump as a dictator don't seem to blink when governors you know, basically rule by fiat for months at a time. David Devil, who's a the editor of Logos, a journal of Catholic thought and culture, visiting professor at the University, University of St. Thomas. We'll be right back. It's a shame the way you mess around with your mess. It's a shame the way you hurt me. It's a shame the way you mess around with your mess. I try. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the program. We're speaking with David Devil, senior contributor at the Imaginative Conservative, editor of Logos, the Journal of Catholic Thought and Culture, visiting professor at the University of St. Thomas. We were talking about um, uh, that fact that life involves risk. You would think this would be rather non-controversial, and it's sort of axiomatic. But, uh, of course, uh, we've been surprised by the behavior of wide swaths of the population in Western nations in response to COVID-19 and and in response uh, to other matters as well. And so... Uh, one is uh, one wonders what a, a committed Christian is supposed to do. This is the topic of some discussion, and it's getting even more discussion now with the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett to the high court. And that confirmation hearing uh, will begin October 12th. Uh, we've already seen and heard some of the responses from some who are uh, rather intolerant of committed Christians uh, about Amy Coney Barrett's faith. And uh, David, you uh, wrote about this topic as well and sort of this debate among some whether or not participating in political activity, even voting, is worthy of a Christian, a committed Christian's time, and, and you sort of agree in part and disagree in part. Yeah, well, I mean, look, the, the people that you meet who are not just never Trumpers, but never anybodyers, the people who say, well, we should just sort of forget about that. Nobody can have any effect on it. Let's just pray and live our lives. They're right in one sense, that, that we can make politics the first and only thing, and it's not. But at the same time, uh, you know, God put us here on this earth and put us in human communities and gave us responsibilities to do what, what we can to make our cities and our towns and our communities uh, the best that they can be, de- free, good, decent societies. And so political, op- political activity is really going to be a part of it. And I think that, that they're wrong to say that we shouldn't get involved because doing something at the margins can help at least put off really bad situations – and at best, it can it can really make our society more free and decent and good. And if you don't like politics, I mean, I understand that. But but politics is interested in you, and yes. so you better take take care to to watch to see whether you can make a difference. Yeah, uh, Rod Dreher, in his uh, most recent book, uh, makes the point as he's made before, but perhaps uh, with even more urgency this go around, uh, that Christians better get prepared for suffering. Uh, regardless of the outcome of this election, but uh, there is a degree to which the suffering uh, could be imposed upon those who really find uh, committed Christians uh, problematic 
in any position of authority, frankly, in any conversation. And um, there, there are not enough uh, uh, Bonhoeffers within clerical ranks standing up. There's not enough committed Christians standing up. And the other side is, at, is very committed to um, punishing Christians for being Christians. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, if you'll let me plug for a minute, uh, I have a book that's co-edited coming out about social needs in an American culture uh, that brings together a number of essays about what we can learn from Solzhenitsyn on these and other topics. And, and one of the things that Solzhenitsyn says in the Gulag Archipelago is great, his great three-volume work on the, the great state prison system that the Soviets uh, built up was that uh, you, could, you could only survive you know, when you were arrested and being interrogated in one way, and that's by considering yourself dead and saying, you know, my life is over. I'm going to now do what, do what I can, and I'm not going to lie. I'm, I'm going to say the truth. And there's a certain way in which, you know, Christians do say, well, we should just forget about politics. No, what you should do is you should enter politics, but with that same idea that politics isn't everything. But you know what? Your life is over. So, you, you, you know, we don't know what will come next. So we need to speak the truth about things and we need to go out and, and be active there because otherwise, you know, the, the, the thing is going to keep going on and the pressure is going to grow and grow. Right now it's a kind of, you know, iron, you know velvet glove with an iron fist. But it might, we might be taking off the velvet glove at some point when it's not just taking away your job or making sure that you can't tweet or something like that, but that it's, it's something more serious. That's the, we that, need to be ready. That's the so-called Benedict option, which I think is sometimes misunderstood as saying Christians should just withdraw. And it's not Christians should withdraw. It's Christians should be Christians, stand up in every venue uh, in which they can in the, in the way that you're describing. Yeah, Rod Dreher has been, I think, misinterpreted sometimes. I think early on he was perhaps less clear, but he does, he's not suggesting that we completely withdraw from politics or, or civic life. But his, his suggestion is we need to get serious about living. You know, Christians need to get serious about living out their faith in their communities and developing their own families and, and developing people to be able to do this and then picking their battles wisely. And, and, I, and I think ultimately that's, that's really right. We need to focus on our communities our internal faith communities, but that's for the purpose then of living out in the world. Uh, and, you know, I mean, and just in terms of the imperative for what uh, I think we're describing, um, I'll put it in a, in a concrete form. Anthea Butler is a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. She's the co-chair of the Biden campaign's Catholics for Biden uh, coalition. Uh, she has um, called the Republican Party craven and evil, but even uh, more interesting than that, She has referred to God. She apparently a professed Catholic. She's referred to God as a white racist. Um, That seems to be a difficult position to square with being a committed Catholic. And maybe uh, Catholics for Biden want would want to reconsider that. Maybe other Catholics would want to um, provide that this this opportunity for a bit of discussion and education and fellowship with one another about Catholicism and God, for that matter. Yeah, I think I think Catholics have there are a lot of Catholics out there who who sort of take this position, and I don't think it goes well with, with what the Catholic Church teaches or is about, but the, uh, what, what usually we're doing is trading on a kind of equivocation, right? Well, Catholic, you know, whatever Catholic politics is, is what Catholics do, but of course, Catholics are criminals. That doesn't mean that, you know, right. we have Christ, you know, Catholic brothels or something like that, and I think many people have, you know, somewhat naively embraced a lot of these movements. They've embraced groups like Black Lives Matter, which have a kind of Marxist origin. And until recently, their website said that they were about the destruction of the nuclear family. Um, you know, so, I, you know, I, I, I don't understand Professor Butler, uh, how she can how she can uh, think the way that she does. 
and, and it's not because I think that Donald Trump is the savior or that Republicans are the savior. Uh, true, no, there's no political party that can create heaven on, on earth. But the reality is you have to use prudence and think about which party is, is less likely to, to do, do destruction, uh, which one is less life, likely to persecute. Uh, the Babylon Bee had a piece you know, a while back that said Christians voting for the party that's, that's least likely to, to destroy them or something like that. And I think we have to think about that. That the, the, the very far left turn in the Democratic Party these days is something that, that we really need to watch and we really need to, to oppose. And while I have friends who are, are pro-life Democrats, uh, I, you know, I think that that's not a, a movement that's got much of a future. It's hardly got a present right now. So I, I think they need to rethink this. He is David Devil, senior contributor at the Imaginative Conservative, editor of Logos, a journal of Catholic thought and culture, visiting professor at the University of St. Thomas as well. David Evil, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Take care. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back on the show, uh, picking up on our conversation with uh, Professor Devil and the last part of what we discussed, which is this uh, professor from University of Pennsylvania, Anthea Butler, who's heading up Catholics for Biden, who has called God a white racist. I, I guess James Blaine was unavailable, so they went with Anthea Butler. A good piece in Crisis Magazine by Declan Leary. Yes, Biden is Catholic. That's the problem. He's Catholic like so many other Catholics in America. And this becomes, you know, another important block to look at where Barack Obama won Catholics, Mitt Romney narrowly won in, in 2008, Mitt Romney narrowly won in 2012. Uh, and, and so this is a substantial voting block. And Joe Biden is a revelatory in the way that Obama was when he talked about his Christian faith and was asked what the definition of sin is. Remember this? And Joe Biden said, sin is anything that goes against my values. <laughs> He's God. Anything that goes against my values is sin. You know, truth does not exist outside of him. Well, in that spirit, uh, Joe Biden said recently, my idea of self, of family, of community, of the wider world comes straight from my religion. It's not so much the Bible, the Beatitudes, the Ten Commandments, the sacraments, or the prayers I learned. It's the culture. Oh, he's a cultural Catholic, meaning not that he uh, is culturally conservative, and it's the application of uh, catechism in uh, the secular world of American culture. No, no. And he's saying it's just eh, it's, you know, it's uh, having a beer on St. Patrick's Day is why he's Catholic and how he's Catholic. As uh, Leary asked, what kind of Catholic culture exists independent of the Bible, the Beatitudes, the Ten Commandments, the sacraments and the and prayer? Can't be a very healthy one, nor a very beautiful one, nor a very productive one. But he says, if we're being honest with ourselves, the one that exists in huge sections of the United States Catholic population is exactly what Joe Biden described. The crisis in the Catholic Church in America is not that it produced Joe Biden, but that it's produced 10 million Joe Bidens. They sit on parish councils. They teach in Catholic schools. They populate the pews on the weeks that is convenient. Joe Biden's relegation to church teaching to a status inferior to his party's platform is not really Joe Biden's at all. He shares it with a remarkable number of his fellow American Catholics. A recent EWTN uh, Pew poll finding us finding uh, that uh, on the issue of abortion, three quarters of self-identified Catholic respondents said it should be legal in at least some cases. Only 20 percent believe it should be 
prohibited. But we can't blame that on Joe Biden. He's a typical product of the Catholic Church in our nation in our time. And uh, it, it, Leary concludes, Joe, Joe Biden is Catholic, just as Catholic as uh, a lot of the rest of us. What a terrifying thought. Just like uh, my home state senator, Dick Durbin, is a Catholic, who thankfully can't receive communion in, uh, in central Illinois, where he used to reside, thanks to the bishop there. Bishop who's actually committed to a church where the Bible, the Beatitudes, the Ten Commandments, the sacraments, the prayers are what provide the foundation for Catholic culture. Something for Catholics to think about, particularly when you have a woman heading up Catholics for Biden who hates God. I mean, I don't know. God's a white racist. You can't, you can't, uh, according to her, so you can't look past that, can you? It's just remarkable. Remarkable the lack of connecting the dots from so many or by so many. Uh, and, and just connecting them back to who they say they are. Uh, maybe some time for reflection over the next few weeks. This is Dan Brock. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Uh, John Solomon, writing at justthenews.com, uh, opining on Jim Comey's testimony before the Senate uh, this week on Wednesday, which we discussed in some detail yesterday. When history, when history looks back decades from now, fired FBI Director James Comey's latest testimony before the Senate may be remembered remarkably, not for what he knew, but rather what he claimed he didn't know. Rich English toffee and creamy chocolate. I don't know what that is. Um, sounds like a uh, commercial for, um, uh, what's, what is that toffee? Was that candy bar? I don't know. Uh, all right. I guess we're going to have to work on this mashup of how many times that Jim Comey said, I did not recall, I cannot recollect, and so on and so forth. And this against the backdrop of all sorts of things that you would think the guy in charge of the FBI investigating a presidential candidate would uh, be, would have very specific knowledge of, including uh, nothing. He couldn't, this was inscrutable to him. He couldn't even make out what uh, DNI Ratcliffe uh, was trying to convey in this letter that he sent. Uh, detailing handwritten notes from one former CIA director, John Brennan, that, uh, again, the notes say John Brennan briefed President Obama, other national security advisors, uh, national security officials about the intelligence, including the alleged approval by Hillary Clinton on July 26, 2016, of a proposal from one of her foreign policy advisors to vilify Donald Trump by stirring up a scandal claiming interference by Russian security sources. Point here is, uh, as... Uh, John Ratcliffe concedes in this recounting of John Brennan's notes is not that they know the accuracy of the allegation, but the allegation is coming from Hillary Clinton supporter and CIA director John Brennan and from the people who say you're supposed to trust your national security and intelligence officials. Uh, here's uh, Jim Comey not talking about English toffee bars. Did Mr. Page deny knowing people that you accuse him of having contact with? I don't remember. That's about all I recall. I don't remember that. I don't remember learning anything additional about Steele's sources. Not that I recall, no. I don't remember Bruce or okay. ever giving okay. me. You're, I don't recall that. So do you recall? I do not. Do you recall? I do not. I don't remember any discussion. I don't remember using that word, but I don't remember using that word. 
I don't remember ever being informed. I don't recall being informed of that. Did you ask any questions or do any due diligence on this at all? I don't remember anything about the, the facts that have been revealed recently about the subsource. I don't remember the exact words, but something similar. You, that doesn't, that doesn't, doesn't ring, that doesn't ring bell. bells with me. Okay. Well, that's a pretty stunning thing. It didn't ring a bell. Which I'm sure you remember. I don't remember the exact words. I don't remember the, whether I knew the Democratic Party. I, I don't know for sure. I don't know. I don't think I knew before. I remember reading the footnote. I don't know whether I asked. I don't know what that refers to. As I said earlier, that does not ring any bells with me when I read that. I don't remember it. I don't uh, I don't remember receiving anything that's described in that letter. You know, uh, Mr. Comey, I call that selective memory. Yeah, uh, at best, Joni Ernst. That should be uh, you know, part of the annals of American history the same way that Ali North's testimony of I don't recall this and I don't recall that during uh, uh, the, the uh, Iran uh, hostages you know, for weapons and, and Iran-Contra deal was. Uh, okay, for more on this topic and obviously a bunch of other big news this morning, starting with uh, President Trump and the First Lady testing positive for COVID, we're pleased to be joined by Brett Baer, Fox News anchor, number one best-selling author of Three Days at the Brink, FDR's daring gamble to win WW2. Brett, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Good morning. I know um, you had uh, properly low expectations for much news coming out of the uh, Jim Comey testimony on the Hill before when we talked about it uh, in the run up to it, um, as did I. And I mean, I think it pretty much lived down to expectations, you know, with the exception of just trying to keep this front and center in the public's mind as more information has become available, like the steel subsource, like this missive from the director of national intelligence and and uh, I guess, but as, as we sit 30 days out, the, the big question is just going to be whether Barr uh, maintains the commitment that he made to tell the story of what happened in 2016 and 2017 for the American people to assess before they make a decision for president. Yeah, I think that that's really where it all lies. What happens with Durham uh, or an interim Durham or some explanation from Barr uh, about where things stand, because the Comey hearing itself was again, like uh, very unfulfilling, like other of those hearings. And uh, and it is amazing. I mean, for all the times that he said he can't recall, uh, he wrote a book. He managed to <laughs> recall pages. I interviewed him for the book. He recalled some things that he put in the book, uh, but he did not recall major events that deal with the investigation. He, he was also... Sorry to interrupt, but he was he was also I mean, his I'll characterize him his typically insufferable self, the key exchange between him and Ted Cruz, where Cruz asked him about uh, no about uh, conveying to the FISA court the fact that the Steele dossier was paid for by Hillary Clinton and the DNC after uh, Comey established when he knew that was true. And he said in response, well, I think the court was surprised there there was political bias in the document. Well, that that's not the same thing, and and it, but that was that's typical of Comey answers when he answers anything that he can recall. Yeah, here's the issue: is that already it was not getting coverage. I mean, we were the only ones that that really did the coverage. Now, with the president, and the first lady having COVID nineteen, right? Um, it's essentially it's not breaking through anything. Unless Durham comes out, and even that on other channels would probably be second fiddle. Uh, with respect to them testing positive, uh, the announcement made uh, overnight uh, by a presidential tweet and then a statement by the doctor that uh, uh, obviously the nation will be a, be apprised of their health. They're apparently asymptomatic at present and so forth. Uh, 
Uh, what's the sense that uh, this gives uh, Democrats more runway to say, well, now we have to cancel the debate, at least the October 15th one? Uh, pretty strong. Uh, I think it's, you know, he's going to be in quarantine. And so they're going to try to do, from what I understand, uh, some uplinks and some, you know, satellite appearances for fundraisers. And uh, But he's not leaving the residence, as far as I, I know. And um, and I don't think they're set up to do a debate with him via Zoom. So I, I'm pretty sure the Miami debate's going to fall by the wayside, and then um, he'd be good to go by, by Nashville. But, uh, I, you know, all these people are kind of playing out how this plays politically. I don't think good for President Trump. I mean, his whole deal is in-person campaigning. Um, he's already trailing Biden on the fundraising numbers. And, uh, you know, uh, is there a sympathy factor? I'm not sure that it extends to President Trump. Not on uh, Twitter's there. It not. should. It should. <laughs> I mean, it's a, he's yeah. the president of the United States. But, right. but I think that after, you know, everything the Democrats have been going after, this kind of fits into that that M.O. Uh, Jake Tapper on CNN uh, lamented that a, a friend's sixth grade daughter burst into tears and had to run to bed. Um, do you think that um, we can't have any more debates, uh, as uh, Frank Bruni argues in The New York Times and, and other op-ed uh, writers argue, because, you know, we're, we're harming the children in addition to the republic? No, no. Listen, we've there's worse things they see on YouTube than, <laughs> no um, kidding. than that. So. Listen, we, we need debates. We need the back and forth. We just need it to be more civil on, on both sides, and hopefully it will be. Uh, Brad, some of the criticism leveled at uh, Chris Wallace has been related to the questions he chose in the way that he chose to frame them, uh, suggesting that, uh, for example, on the question about uh, racial sensitivity training of federal government employees, that um, you know he starts from the premise of the left. How do you uh, react to that criticism? Yeah, I'm not going to go down the road of going into Chris's questions or analysis of, of why he chose to do what he did. He had a plan. Uh, the plan was thrown out the window. And, um, you know, I think he, he regrets some things. Uh, he talked about it the other day, but I'll let his words speak for himself. Uh, looking prospectively at these debates, just again, leaning on your experience um, and, and, and sort of the, the selection of the moderators, the news circulating that uh, – Steve Scully, the moderator of the next debate, uh, if it does happen, was a, uh, a former intern for Joe Biden. Now, I mean, you could argue that could cut both ways. Maybe he didn't enjoy his experience there. So but but regardless, I mean, just the appearance of that. Is that a problem? Listen, I've known Steve for years and years and years. You know, he's the guy at C-SPAN, right? Yeah. Who listens yeah. to both sides, takes all the calls. You know, he's he's as fair as they come because he was an intern at, you know, way back when, when he was a teenager, um, I don't think really factors in. Is it the greatest appearance? No, but he's, he's very, very solid. He's a, he's a straight shooter to Republicans and Democrats. His role is going to be facilitating these town hall questions. Right. And, um, again, if it happens at all, I don't, I don't think that this is going to happen unless they figure out the remote zoom, deal. And I think that'll be awkward, but it's going to be fascinating to see. He is Brett Baer, Fox News anchor, as you know, special report, 5 p.m. Chicago time weekdays, number one best-selling author of Three Days at the Brink, FDR's daring gamble to win World War II. Brett, thanks as always for being with us.
and the show at danproftshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Uh, last hour, I gave you a good example of being the bad example as it pertained to COVID and K-12 education. That was Oak Park, Illinois. Let me give you a good example of being the bad example when it comes to violent crime versus law and order in a big urban center. This, of course, is going to be Chicago. There was a reason that President Trump mentioned it in Tuesday's debate. It deserves mentioning. July in Chicago was the most violent month in Chicago in 30 years. August in Chicago was the most violent month in nearly 20 years. September in Chicago was the deadliest September since 1993. So that's 27 years. Starting to sense a pattern. Uh, killings in Chicago, murders to be specific, up three times the national average. And uh, murders are up significantly because of the so-called Minneapolis effect of the violence, the appeasement of violence over the summer in so many communities. Uh, give you a sense of Chicago, which, again, this is always a jarring stat. I think most people don't appreciate, uh, appreciate uh, the scope of this problem and how quickly it spirals. Uh, Chicago has more murders with just under 3 million people than L.A. and New York combined with something on the order of 11 million people, more than New York and L.A. combined with uh, about a quarter of the population combined, uh, of their combined population. Total homicides so far in Chicago this year, 605. Total shot, the number of people shot in Chicago, 3,216. You know, it, it's one of those things that we focus on murders for obvious reasons, but you also need to include shootings because, as uh, I'm often want to remind people, you know, getting shot is normally a fairly serious, if not catastrophic, injury. Nothing to be taken lightly. We don't take getting sick from COVID and the lasting effects of potentially being sick, like really sick from COVID. We don't take that lightly. Talk all about that. Hear all kinds of discussion about it in terms of long-term damage to the lungs, respiratory system. Fine. It's a real thing. <laughs> How about the long-term damage being shot can inflict on a person and often does? So 605 dead, 3,216 shot. And uh, let me uh, break this news to Chris Wallace and Joe Biden and the identitarian left. This is uh, not the Klan's work. This is not the work of the Proud Boys. This is the work uh, largely of street gangs, where both the majority of shooters and the majority of victims are African-American. But I hasten to add, and in the majority and in, in neighborhoods that are majority African-American, where the majority of residents are law abiding. This is a small cadre of violent criminals that are allowed to be violent criminals by the established power structure in the city of Chicago and in Cook County. Much the same way you see in other urban centers, but it's even worse here, clearly. A person is shot every two hours in Chicago. A person is murdered every 11 hours in Chicago. And uh, what is the response on the uh, news that Chicago had its most violent September since 1993, Mayor Triple Threat, Lightfoot, at a press conference yesterday. This is uh, making national news, particularly when you see the picture. Mayor Lightfoot, the triple threat, with her public health director, who we've heard a lot from in this era of COVID. Her name is Allison Arwadi. This is how they showed up to address the press. Big public announcement. 
they had on the most violent September in 27 years? Not exactly. What you're about to hear, by the way, is taken right from the press conference. This is not us putting a music bed in as a lead in. So guess what we're here to talk about today? That's right. You guessed it. The topic of conversation is uh, guidelines for trick-or-treating for Halloween at the end of this month. And both the mayor and her public health director are dressed up as some sort of superheroes calling themselves Rona busters, as in coronavirus busters. Yes, seriously. People on social media, when we posted the pictures at Dan Prof, at Dan Prof show, is this real? Oh, oh, it's real. First things first, I want to address the thing that's on everyone's mind, and that, of course, is trick or treating. First off, trick or treating is allowed, but with some rules, which Dr. Already will explain in a moment. But here's the bottom line you can only meet in groups of six or less, and you have to stay moving. We, we must simply avoid congregating in front of houses, on streets. Keep it moving, folks. People passing out candy are also asked to try to maintain social distancing while doing so. I'm sure people will come up with some very inventive ways to hand out candy and maintain social distancing. Perfect. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know if she gets the con- can't congregate at the door. Well, how do I get the candy? Uh, you, you know, the, somebody will fire it at you from the doorway to the sidewalk. Can't congregate uh, with friends in costumes, trick-or-treat with friends, because, uh, uh, you know, I mean, uh, Halloween is a solitary event. You cannot believe these costumes. You have to go online to see it. I, I There's no words to do it proper justice, as well as the tone deafness. <laughs> I mean, the absolute tone deafness of making this announcement as if the uh, trick-or-treating guidelines are... A pressing matter. I think the loss of life is a pressing matter. I think the violence that has at uh, uh, historic levels is a pressing matter. But, it, you know, they're fun. They like to play dress up. Uh, Lori Lightfoot and Allison Arwadi, her public health director, are taking a page from Earl Long's book. Uh, people don't want good government. They want good entertainment, right? Here's the good doctor, Arwadi. Getting in on the guffawing. You know, the zest for life these two ladies have. It's just infectious. There's a study out this month that found that horror movie fans are more psychologically resilient in the time of COVID. Horror movie fans have been found to have significantly lower psychological distress during the pandemic. People who are fans of prepper genres, zombie, apocalypse, alien invasion, have been found to have lower psychological distress. And people who have watched pandemic films in the past are more likely to be pandemic prepared. Well, um, you know, her comedic timing could use work, but that's about the quality of the science that they actually rely on to uh, offer their, well, not offer, to impose their COVID edicts. Good news, though, uh, restaurant capacity for Chicago restaurants bumps up uh, a couple of points this weekend. So everything's right because we're having fun and we have Halloween to look forward to, trying to catch candy being thrown at us from front stoops. And uh, we got, uh, you know, some more restaurants uh, 
bleeding out a little bit less slowly. Go see that picture. And uh, again, if you uh, live in a locale other than Chicago and governed by Marxists of a similar sort, tell me again how you think you live in the worst governed, dumbest city in America. Because I think uh, Lori Lightfoot and her sidekick, you know, the Hamburglar, and uh, I don't know even what uh, Arwadi, I, I, I don't want to say Grimace, but she doesn't really look like Grimace. I, I don't know. These two, these two, the choice they decided to make in this context is just, it's remarkable. And uh, there will be no price to pay for their unseriousness in somewhat serious times, I think we could fairly say. This is Dan. I asked the guy, why are you so fly? He said, funky, comedina. Listening to the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. We're going to go from the ridiculous of Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot to the ridiculous of former Twitter CEO Dick Costello and then to the sublime of Dominic Green. So hold on for the sublime. But first, a little bit more ridiculous. Uh, this week, uh, Twitter CEO Dick Costello, a man whose net worth is estimated to be in the $300 million range, took to Twitter to uh, offer this. Me first capitalists who think you can separate society from business are going to be the first people lined up against the wall and shot in the revolution. I'll happily provide video commentary. Hmm. Uh, so um, he, we got to have another Louis Philippe here, uh, Dick Costello. He thinks he's leading the Jacobins to the revolution. Okay. Uh, Forbes explained that uh, the origination of this discussion in which Costello opined was a debate about uh, uh, whether or not the tech industry should actively promote social justice, uh, read Marxist causes, and encourage political conversations at work. And uh, so Costello is saying you can't separate society from business. And those who try to, uh, he is going to uh, ensure are lined up and shot, which is a bit violent, but uh, oh, okay, sure. Um, you know, it, it calls to mind the old saw that uh, someday I hope I'm rich enough to hate capitalism. Dick Costello does. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by our friend Dominic Green, life and arts editor of Spectator USA. Dominic, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. It's great to be here, Doug. Uh, always uh, like to get to, since you're the life and arts editor, always like to get your uh, take on, uh, you know, the culture that is uh, Silicon Valley and uh, the important debates that are emanating from within it. Yeah, it's very strange, really. If you wanted to look at the success of capitalism, you could point to Silicon Valley. If you wanted to look at everything that is wrong with uh, capitalism, you could probably point there as well. Either way, capitalism is, and Silicon Valley very much is capitalism, and it's simply bizarre for somebody who has done so well from it to suddenly give the nod to uh, executing capitalists. Um, it does fit the drift, which is the higher up you get in American life, the more left-wing you have to sound. As, as a uh, diplomatic position to take up, really. Um, why did Casilla do this? I, I imagine he learned these attitudes when he was at college, and now he can actually afford to have them. Yeah, exactly. Afford to have them is the operative phrase. And and so I wonder um, if uh, if President Trump and the Trump campaign have, have lost something by not reasserting the notion that one of the frameworks for thinking about the November 3rd election is a capitalism, free markets, market economy, versus a command control economy and a lower quality of life that uh, inevitably attend is attendant to that sort of 
planned economy? Well, I would think so. I mean, my view is it's like the one that Winston Churchill took of democracy, that it's the worst system apart from all of the others. Um, one of the things that Joe Biden very de- clearly did not want to talk about was uh, taxes and in particular uh, environmental policy. He said he's not in favor of the Green New Deal. Uh, but then again, his website says that the Green New Deal is his, the framework for his own environmental tax and spend campaign. Of course, um, it's, it's easier to win an election by promising to spend money. But the point is, it's, it's the electorate's money that's being spent. It's the taxpayers who have to pay the taxes. So uh, this is something I think the Trump campaign could make more of. But um, President Trump emphasized the, the success of the economy under his tenure, the pre-COVID-19 success, of course. And he emphasized also the fast recovery the U.S. is having, which it's worth noting is faster than just about any other developed economy, if not the fastest. With uh, President Trump and the First Lady testing positive for the infection, uh, and uh, and I just wonder your perspective on Boris Johnson uh, when he tested positive and, and he, he got seriously ill, intensive care, and ultimately, thankfully, recovered, and, and how that was received by the British population from, from the notice that he was infected to, to the notice that he was seriously ill and then to the recovery. Did that, did that change attitudes about COVID at all in, in the U.K.? I think so. I think anybody who didn't take it seriously at that point had to realize that actually, no, this is a real thing. Um, yeah, the difference is that Boris Johnson became ill early on when uh, we didn't really have much of an understanding of what the disease was and what the best ways of treating people were. Uh, Donald Trump has come down with it a good six months further on, and we know uh, very clearly which kind of treatments and responses are likely to turn uh, an infection into a mild case rather than a severe one. Um, I'm imagining that as the hours pass, the the, uh, the left will not be able to resist the kind of ghoulish uh, tweeting that accompanied Boris Johnson's illness. Within hours, people were saying that, in effect, they hoped that he died or that he deserved it because they didn't agree with his policies. And I suspect we are going to see some of that. Oh, no, no question. Uh, upon the uh, the notice that uh, he and the First Lady were infected, uh, George Conway, Kelly and Conway's husband, tweeted, uh, he failed to protect the country. He couldn't even protect himself. Sort of a non sequitur. Uh, not much of an intellectual heavyweight, this George Conway. Um, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm just glad that uh, this Internet virologist married to Kellyanne Conway revealed himself before he got some government patronage gig that he wanted because of his wife. Uh, when we come back with uh, Dominic Green, want to talk, uh, switch gears and talk about uh, this interview he got with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. I know foreign policy hasn't been much of the conversation to this point, but it needs to be part of it. More with Dominic Green, Life and Arts Editor, Spectator USA, right after this. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the program we're speaking with dominic green the life and arts editor for spectator usa and uh, dominic you had the opportunity recently to sit down with mike pompeo and uh, per your piece, Pompeo's Principles at Spectator.us. Seems like you had a wide-ranging conversation and a good one. Um, the uh, the big takeaway in terms of Pompeo's assessment of the so-called principled realism, the philosophical uh, foundation of Trump and, and, by extension, Pompeo foreign policy over the last several years. 
It, yes, it is. And I, I thought Pompeo came across as an extremely thoughtful and articulate person. And essentially, he's trying to strike a balance between the two tendencies of American foreign policy. One of them, of course, is the tendency to try and remake the world, which in some cases has worked very well, for instance, say Japan or Germany, and in some has been a disaster, for instance, Iraq or Afghanistan. And the other impulse, of course, is the reaction to that, which is the isolationist impulse, the, the one to withdraw entirely. And Pompeo is attempting to strike a balance, which I think is a smart thing to do. And he's trying to strike a balance which, on one hand, can't always be made, and on the other has to be made, which is to identify the real interests economically at home before he starts talking about where the line lies overseas. And this seems to be the right way around to me. This is the mistake that was made, say, by both the Clinton and George W. Bush and, to a degree, the Obama administrations. They looked at foreign interests before they looked at the interests of the American people at home. And this does seem to be a sustainable way of doing it. They're trying to build alliance systems to create a U.S. world, in effect, to compete with the one that China was building, because China is trying to build its own global infrastructure. It has this Belt and Road Initiative. It's offering Huawei's 5G to everybody. In other words, there's going to be a Chinese standard for doing things and an American standard. And I think this administration has been very successful in laying the ground for that American standard that any free country, any free people would want to belong to in the 21st century. And uh, he, he also uh, uh, takes the position that uh, this um, this uh, showdown with China that is uh, sort of here, but also looming perhaps in uh, in a bigger way, uh, it does not fit the theory of the, the, the of the Thucydides trap. It, it is not going to necessitate America. It is not inevitable that America will have to go to war with China in order to retain uh, you, uh, a global hegemony or in order to retain its uh, status as a free nation or the West that status yes, as free yeah. nations. That's right. Thucydides' trap is, it comes from the ancient Greek historian Thucydides, who's really the father of all the modern historians. He says, you know, the rising power always leads to war with the uh, status quo power. And uh, Pompeo argues uh, that this doesn't have to fit uh, the U.S.-China paradigm. And indeed, uh, Graham Allison, who's the, uh, the Harvard analyst who, who brought the Thucydides trap back to public attention recently, he allows that in about a third of his case studies, it doesn't lead to direct conflict either. Pompeo reckons that if we draw the line sensibly, we can avoid the kind of um, accidental spark that, that might lead to a major conflict. Um, there are, of course, questions here. For instance, Taiwan is a particular one. The uh, Chinese government is adamant that Taiwan should be part of a one China. Um, the U.S. Uh, under Donald Trump has edged closer towards recognizing uh, Taiwan as an as independent and free state, but it hasn't gone all the way back to that. There are real questions which will arise later. At what point? Does principle come into real conflict with a realistic understanding of what the national interest is? And uh, with respect to the, the breakthrough in the Middle East and, and the import of that, what kind of context does Pompeo uh, provide those developments and, and where uh, they can lead, both in terms of uh, a more stable Middle East and more protection for our Israeli allies and our moderate Arab allies as well, but also as bulwarks against Iran and Russia and America's enemies? Well, he was very clear on this. He said we basically upended every assumption about the last 30 years of foreign policy. The idea 
that there had to be an Israeli-Palestinian deal before there could be any other deals between Israel and an Arab state. I mean, the Trump administration has had fortune on its side in that the time is right for this kind of breakthrough. But it could not have happened without a commitment to fresh thinking and an, um, and an unwillingness to follow these failed paths that hadn't worked under Clinton, under George W. Bush, and then under Obama. They'd really have the, the courage to start again, and it's worked. And one of the things that surprised me at this week's presidential debate was not enough emphasis was placed on this. The Trump administration has done better in its foreign policy than just about any administration since the Cold War. And in addition to that, in particular, and this, this I guess, needs to be said explicitly, as President Trump touts rebuilding the military and reinvesting in the military, he is also he also has shrunk the U.S. military's footprint in theaters of war and uh, really spoken to the war fatigue that the American public has had for some time in theaters like you mentioned, Iraq and Afghanistan, for starters. Yes, he has. And, and he seems to be much more attuned to what the public think of this. The public understand, I believe, that the United States has global interests and that it's in the interest of the U.S. to sustain them because the world system we have is the one whose rules were written by the U.S. in 1945 and after. On the other hand, that's not a license to expend blood and treasure all over the world on, on daft democratization efforts, uh, for instance, uh, and in Afghanistan or in Iraq, and the kind of eternal mission creep where once a commitment is made, it must be extended and expanded and driven on and funded. And as I said, funded in part with the lives of American servicemen and women. Well, and, and this provides such a contrast, too, to uh, Biden's foreign policy, which is uh, sort of a return to an internationalist perspective. We need to uh, you know, re get on board with the Paris Climate Accord. We need uh, uh, to uh, uh, treat uh, terrorist states like uh, Iran as just friends we haven't, uh, or, you know, friends we haven't made yet uh, per the nuclear deal. I mean, they're real stark contrasts in the approach to both our friends and enemies between the two candidates. Yes, it's one of the very strange things about, about Biden's campaign, an indication that he may have lost touch with reality in those long weeks in his basement. The, the world outside has changed quite drastically. It's very hard to imagine, for instance, that America's allies in the Middle East, Israel and the moderate Arab state, would accept a revival of the Iran deal. They would, they would be absolutely aghast at this. It would, it would go against everything that they themselves want. It's, it's very strange that um, the, uh, the Democratic Party in general, which has so much bad stuff to say about the United States, simultaneously wants to impose the American system upon the rest of the world. It doesn't make sense at all. I don't believe, to be honest, that Biden has a coherent understanding of anything that's going on in the world. In fact, I'm not sure he has a coherent understanding of what's going on in his own basement. Nevertheless, what we get if, if the Biden administration comes in is an attempt to do Obama part three. And uh, the world is a totally different place now. He is Dominic Green, the life and arts editor at Spectator USA. Uh, do check out his speech, which I'll tweet out, Pompeo's Principles at spectator.us. Dominic, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the show. As uh, we close out an eventful week, uh, we look forward to keeping you updated about uh, the condition of President Trump and the First Lady. 
uh, as well as uh, the cabinet, anybody else he's come in contact with. Hope Hicks, too, who tested positive, but obviously she's younger and healthier, and so probably, um, well, not probably, is very much less likely to suffer severe illness, but it happens, so we'll keep you updated on all of those matters and how it may impact the vice presidential debate coming up on Wednesday and the prospect of uh, two more presidential debates, October 15th and October 22nd, as scheduled at the moment. Uh, but, uh, you know, part of the issue uh, that was discussed Tuesday night's debate and will continue to be discussed is ballot security. We had the story of these uh, vets ballots, nine of them being uh, found uh, in, in Lucerne County, Pennsylvania, being found unaccounted for. Seven were votes for Trump. It's a real issue. We have this story now out of Philadelphia, sort of important with Pennsylvania being a swing state. And as we were talking about earlier in the show with Chris Buzkirk, uh, the combination of potentially increase in support from black and Latino voters, plus the Republican Party's ground game, the Trump campaign, the Republican Party's ground game to increase voter registration in some of these swing states, including Pennsylvania, um, perhaps makes the race a lot more narrow than some of the polling would indicate, something that maybe uh, the Nate Silvers of the world and other pollsters are not picking up. So this story out of Philadelphia, police investigating after someone stole an employee's laptop and encrypted USB devices from an election machine warehouse in Philadelphia. Hmm. Go right for the machines. According to election services and software, the laptop did not hold any sensitive data related to elections, was not used to program the election or interact with USBs used in the elections. The USBs are encrypted, contain multiple levels of security. Uh, the uh, company changed the employee's corporate network user account. Device address was blocked. Passwords changed once they learned of the theft. And they express confidence, of course they do, that the incident will not in any way compromise the integrity of the election. Although uh, in a further incident, uh, a uh, local reporter was able to walk right into that same warehouse asking to speak to, some, to speak to someone with instant access to voting machines with no one in sight to stop him yesterday morning. Sure. Uh, nothing to see here. Uh, it's good to know that, uh, you know, Johnny Rocco and the gang are in charge of the uh, Pennsylvania election. How many of those guys in office owe everything to me? I made them. Yeah, I made them just like a like a tailor makes a suit of clothes. I take a nobody, see? Teach him what to say. Get his name in the papers. Now, paper is campaign expenses. Dish out a lot of groceries and coal. Get my boys to bring the voters out. And then count the votes over and over again until they added up right and he was elected. Yeah. And what happened? Did he remember when the going got tough? When the heat was on? No, he didn't want it. All he wanted was to save his own dirty necks. Yeah, that's enough of that. Give me a towel, will you? Yeah. Public enemy, he calls me. Me? We gave him this public all wrapped up with a fancy bow on it. Yeah, Johnny Rocco, Ed Rendell, Philadelphia Democrats. Is there really any distinction other than the quality of Edward G. Robinson's acting? Thanks for joining us all week on the Dan Prof Show. Please join us again on Monday. We'll have a lot to update. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news.